I'm Josiah Carey. I'm the campus minister for uh, UVA RUF. RUF is the campus ministry of our denomination to the college campus. Um, I just want to say two notes of thanks. Uh, one is to Pastor Essen, who has been a great encouragement to me. This is my first year at UVA. I was at Tulane uh, the last, the previous seven years. Um, just finished my first year at UVA, and Essen has really encouraged me tremendously in the ministry there. And secondly, I just want to thank you as a church body. I've heard uh, that you have prayed for me and for the ministry at UVA regularly, and I just want to give you many thanks for that. Um, prayer is the motor for the ministry at UVA, and so thank you. Please continue doing that. Um, I believe it's our custom in this congregation to stand. Ah, and Children's Church is happening. <laughs> so if you're a child, please do that. Uh, otherwise, I believe it's our custom to stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to be reading Philippians 3, starting in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining to, to what Sorry, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, and let's pray for the... Uh, teaching of God's word. <clears throat> Father, thank you that you have not remained far off, but you are here with us now by your spirit and you've revealed yourself through this, your word. Um, and thank you for uh, desiring relationship with us and desiring for us to hear from you this morning that we might know you. And so we pray that you would open our ears um, and that you would make your word come alive in, in our lives uh, through the work of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Life is the crummiest book I ever read. These are the words on the screen at the start of the film, Stranger Than Fiction. And the movie follows Harold, who's played by Will Ferrell, as he lives his life. He wakes up, he gets dressed, he brushes his teeth. Uh, it's just a ho-hum life. And we have this narrator who is uh, doing a voiceover of his inner life, his thoughts. And she even describes him counting his brush strokes in his head. And so we follow him for a few days, and we listen to this voiceover uh, narrator, and all of a sudden, Harold stops brushing his teeth, and the narrator's voice stops. And Harold slowly starts brushing again, and the narrator starts counting his brush strokes again, and then he stops, and the voice stops. And he starts again, the narrator starts counting, he stops, and the voice stops, and he's like, uh, hello, how do you know that I'm counting the brush strokes in my head? <laughs> And Harold's ho-hum life gets turned upside down when he learns that his life is being narrated by an author. He's living out a story that's being written. 
And so Harold spends the rest of the film trying to discover who this author of the story is. And he goes to literary experts to try to discover who it is. And finally, he finds out. And so he goes to her. She's played by Emma Thompson. He talks to her. And in surprise of surprises, she tells him part of his future story. So he learns part of his future. And it's not what he would have written. She actually says that she's written an ending where he chooses to die by throwing himself in front of a bus to save the life of a little boy. And so he starts complaining to the author. Uh, and she gives him the choice whether he will live into the story, press into it, or if he will turn away from the script. And so we wonder, what's he going to do? Will he press into this story that the author has written, or will he turn away from it? And he wavers, but he recognizes that he's living in this story that's a moral drama, and so his decision matters, and it's a beautiful story, and he has a beautiful part to play in it. And so instead of living for himself, he chooses to press into the story that's been written for him. Friends, today you are in the same position as Harold. If the Bible is true, you right now live in the midst of a story being written by an author that's not you. And I know that's a wild claim. And in a sense, you've been given freedom to press into that story or to turn away from it. We can turn away from participating in the story that God is writing. Sometimes we even fail to recognize we're in a story that's bigger than us. And so we live as though we are the author rather than God, or as though there's no meaning or direction or consequence or moral drama to our lives. Verse 19 talks about living with minds set on earthly things. And this phrase, earthly things, isn't saying that the world is bad. It's talking about the horizon toward which you live your life. It means living within the imminent frame, this idea that whether there is or isn't something transcendent, we have no access to it. So we're just going to live right here with what we see toward a horizontal horizon. In other words, our mindset on, living with mindset on earthly things means living without reference to the story that God is writing. And I think this is often where we find ourselves living our lives. We stare at our phones rather than at the stars. We keep ourselves busy rather than stopping to pray. We think if it's socially permissible, then it's permissible. We seek to write our stories purely according to what we want to write. It's about our desires, our pleasure, our gratification. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. And so this is what Paul is describing as life with mindset on earthly things. Again, it's not that removed from us. I think it's how we all live, at least some of the time. We want to consume people sexually without consequence. We want to have amazing experiences and amazing places for their own sake. We want to stuff ourselves with dessert and alcohol to deaden the pain. We want to create utopia through human power, so we pour our anxiety into the next election. We want to feel better about ourselves, so we look down on this person we're reading about or the person next to us. In all these ways, we find ourselves living without reference to the story that God is writing. So when Paul talks about people who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, most likely he's, he's talking about people who claim to follow Jesus. He's warning this church, though you claim to follow Jesus, watch that you don't live as enemies of the cross, enemies of the story Jesus is writing, because we can all stop to listen to Jesus and start listening to the siren calls of voices around us. There's so many other voices around us. And I imagine one of those implicit voices is, you're kind of crazy to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. 
And maybe you hear that voice, even though you've been following him faithfully for years, but your life isn't going as as you dreamed or as it seemed that God had promised. You prioritize church and it means you miss the soccer travel team. You suffer loss after loss. And then in the end, it seems like the world is chiefly cruel. You pour yourself into ministry to your friends and neighbors and the fruit is so slow or so small. As we follow Jesus, it often seems that following Jesus entails loss, pain, a cross. Look at verse 18. It says, Many, I tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And in the story Jesus is writing, Jesus' cross is the climax of the story. And so Paul is reminding us and warning us, don't live as enemies of that story. Stephen Fowler explains what this means. He says, to be an enemy of the cross means to trust in human wisdom and power rather than in God's redemption accomplished through the apparent weakness and folly of the crucified Messiah. So to be an enemy of the cross means to make yourself strong so you don't need Jesus' grace. You don't need to receive Jesus' suffering in the midst of our weakness to show us grace. It also means just as for heralds, living in the story requires we give up our own story writing and submit ourselves to Jesus' story writing. But why would we embrace a story like that that's not my own and that centers on a cross? It has to have captured you. It has to become beautiful to you. It has to take hold of you. And look, it's captured Paul. Look at verse 12. He says, Christ Jesus has made me his own. Christ Jesus has made me his own. That's what he's doing in each of your lives too. Through suffering, Jesus pressed on to take hold of you. Philippians 2 says that Jesus gave up his riches as the son of God and became poor so that you and your poverty might become rich. Jesus gave up his glory and became low so you might share his glory. He gave up his holiness and became sin so that we, in our lack of love, might be given his loving heart and learn to love. Jesus pressed on through a shameful death on a cross, bearing the sin and shame of every person in history, so you might be his. He pressed on to take hold of you because he loves you, so that you might take hold of him. And so this is the call to us this morning. In response to what Jesus has done, press on to take hold of Jesus. Press on to take hold of Jesus. Look at verse 12. I press on to make it my own. And then verse 13. One thing I do. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus himself is our prize, that we would be in him, receiving his love and loving him in return. You could translate, translate this, the call of God into Christ Jesus, into his love. And we aren't, aren't there yet, and we don't show perfect love to Jesus yet. And this is why Paul twice says, I don't yet have it fully, but I'm starting to experience it. In Jesus, I right now have a love relationship with the God who made the universe. And I can press into Jesus now. And my love is growing each day. And one day, it will be made perfect. And so this passage shows us two important aspects of what it means to press on. We press on to take hold of Jesus by pressing onto the destination and pressing in to the process. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. First, press on to the destination. If life is a journey... You have to know where you're going. Paul presents a finish line or a destination, and he calls us to strain forward toward it as though we're in a race. So I want to brag on my wife a little bit. She ran a marathon a few years back. 
If you've ever seen people as they finish a marathon, they look like they're dying. They're blanched white. They look like zombies. Uh, looking at them makes me never want to run a marathon. But Kelly finished 26, and it looks like she could keep running 10 more. She was just cruising. She looked, she was glowing with joy. Um, even though running this marathon was amazingly easy for her, if she had run 21 miles and didn't know there was a finish line, a destination five miles ahead, she would have, I imagine, thought, wow, I just ran 21 miles. That's amazing, and stopped running. She kept running because she knew there was a finish line. You have to know that there is a finish line and what it is, or you will give up. To strain forward toward what lies ahead, you must know the finish line. And so the horizon of the story Jesus is writing is Jesus. It's life with Jesus. That's your destination. The Bible says the most beautiful moment you've ever experienced in this life is a mere taste of life face-to-face -face with him and his love. Another comparison. The Bible says if you sack all the pain you've ever experienced together, and I know it's a lot, but in comparison it says it's a dot of sand compared to the enormity of the joy of love you'll experience in Jesus' world made new. Friends, no matter where you are in your journey, there is an invitation to you this morning, farther up and farther in to the deep love of Jesus. Often we picture the destination of a couple's relationship as the wedding. Um, but if Michael Sawyer, I, I imagine you know uh, the Sawyer family, if Michael Sawyer pictures his wedding last month as the destination of his relationship with grace, then something really sad is going to happen. He pressed on to love her up to their wedding date, and I imagine they had a beautiful day together. But what will happen beyond that? Their relationship is going to stagnate. They already reached their destination. Nothing lies ahead. See, the destination of their relationship can't be the wedding. In reality, the wedding marks the beginning of a couple's relationship. It's the beginning of covenant love. And it's the start of your journey together. The point of a wedding is not that it's the destination, but it's given so that you might start traveling together toward the destination. And the destination is still ahead. In a sense, a wedding is given so that you might press into each other's love more each day. But the destination is that deeper love for one another. And similarly, Jesus made us his own so that we might press into his love more and more each day. The destination or the fullness of his love lies ahead. Of course, at root, a wedding is given so you might point one another deeper and deeper into the love of Jesus, since he is our destination. I imagine wedding love uh, can feel way more, more real and present than Jesus' love. It often feels that way to me. So you need to know that the finish line is marked by resurrection, just as Jesus' body was raised from the dead, our bodies will be raised from the dead and we will live with him. We will not finally experience Jesus' love in an amorphous way, but in a physical, face-to-face -face way. And it will be far more satisfying than any other love you have or will ever experience. Resurrection life with Jesus is your destination. We see that in verse 21. It says, Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. See, Jesus is not saving us from this world so we can worship him in heaven. He's making the physical world totally new, including our broken bodies and our unloving hearts. 
He's going to heal all our ecologies and economics and entertainment complexes. And death will not get the last word. In the story that God is writing, death has no final say over you or your loved ones or over any of the good that Jesus is working in the world. And Jesus, everything that you have ever lost, including your body, will be fully restored. And you will experience the fullness of his love in a fully restored world. This is your destination. This is the story God's writing. Isn't that amazing? That's a finish line worth pressing on toward. And this future resurrection life with Jesus means two things for us. First, it frees us from getting stuck in the past. Verse 13, Paul invites us to forget what lies behind. He's not saying forget your history. Uh, we all need to learn, to learn and own our stories. But we can get stuck in our past. Rather than owning our story, we can let it drive us. We can get bogged down in past failure. We can bank on past success. We can live out of past pain. And Paul is inviting us to let the future promise of resurrection draw us forward and out of being stuck. He's inviting us to not let our past hold the trump card over our lives, but rather to see our story truly in light of the story that he is writing. So regret sees the defining moment of our life in the past. It says the finish line was back here and you missed it. Pride says the finish line was back here and you made it. But both are wrong. The finish line is ahead. If you're in Jesus, the defining moment in your life was in the past, but it was a moment that had nothing to do with you. It was Jesus' empty tomb, his resurrection. That event secures your destiny in the fullness of his love with a perfected body and heart in perfect relationship to him if you will receive him by faith. See, resurrection frees us from failure and regret and allows us to let go of perfection because nothing lost is ever finally lost in Jesus. Paul emphasizes twice that he is not perfect. And then in verse 15, he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And so this word translated mature is the exact same uh, root word that we have translated perfect in verse 12. He's saying, if you're actually perfect, you'll know you're nothing close to being perfect. And that's okay. You get to let go of perfection because Jesus was perfect for you in the past. And perfection of love is coming in the future. And now the point is that you'd experience Jesus' love in the midst of your imperfection. Yesterday, my three-year-old daughter uh, insisted to me that four plus four is nine. And we, we kept inviting her to try to do the math again. And she's actually pretty good at counting on her fingers. But she refused to even look at her fingers. She just said, no, four plus four is nine. And she insisted because uh, she was she was embarrassed and she was angry at herself that she'd made a mistake. And how often do I do the same thing? I, I live angry at my past self for making a mistake, refusing to forgive that past self. Or I live in the present doing all I can to avoid embarrassment. And so she ended up hiding her face and running away in shame and anger. But of course, my love for her is not based on her knowing what four plus four is. I think it's amazing she can do any math as a three-year-old. <laughs> and my future love for her is secure whether or not she gets angry or gets embarrassed or runs away. And doesn't that mean she doesn't need to feel embarrassed or angry about it when she's not perfect? Friends, in the same way, 
you can really forget failure because your future is secure in Jesus. His love isn't changing. And so if you find yourself living out of the past, press into this story that God is writing. Press into this hope that Jesus will truly make all things new in his love. Here's the second application from this. Resurrection life with Jesus gives you a present mission. Look at verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Philippi was this Roman colony, and that meant that as Roman citizens, the Philippians were supposed to bring Roman culture and values into the Greek world. They weren't supposed to try to go back to Rome. They weren't trying to move to the city of Rome. They were supposed to stay where they were and bring Roman culture and values into that place. And similarly, when we read that our citizenship is in heaven, Paul wasn't telling the Philippians to try to go to heaven. He was saying, you're an outpost of God's kingdom in this world, in this place he's put you. You're here to bring the culture and values of God's kingdom wherever you are on earth. And ultimately, it's this political claim. Paul says our allegiance is not to Caesar, but to Jesus. Our mission is to build uh, build and bring God's kingdom rather than earthly kingdoms. And we do that by pressing in to Jesus in our hearts on a daily basis. You might know there's another election season heading our way over the next 18 months. Um, And it seems to me that one place Christians seem to forget to press into the story Jesus is writing is in how we engage politics. And our passage reminds us that for those in Jesus, our defining citizenship is not American citizenship. That doesn't mean we're anti-America. In fact, I think it means we should endeavor to be the best American citizens, uh, the best neighbors and citizens that we can be. But not because of our American citizenship, but actually because we don't belong to America. We belong to Jesus. The president is not our savior, and the democratic process is not our savior, and Republicans and Democrats are not our savior. Christians represent a different thing altogether, and that is the kingdom of God. And that doesn't mean we try to take over the government, and likewise, it doesn't mean we disengage the political process. But it does mean that our ultimate hope and destination is never through a human political party or program. Our king is about the work of love. And while love can certainly take political shape, the political shape of love is not our savior. Jesus is. And so we wait and pray for Jesus to make all things new in his love. And practically, this means we pray for wisdom as we vote. It means we pray for the Lord to give wisdom to whoever is elected, as we did this morning. And it means we get to be way more relaxed and lower anxiety about elections because our future ultimately depends on Jesus. We cannot let politics distract us from pressing in to our destination. Don't aim for anything less in your life than life with Jesus in the world made new. That is our destination. And friends, I know pressing on to that destination is so difficult in America in 2023. I imagine you're tired. I imagine you give and love and serve and wonder what has come of it. And I, I know what it's like to slowly step away from pressing into Jesus and you bank on your old life with Jesus while wondering if it's possible for that passion to be renewed. And so this morning, I just want to remind you, you have the most beautiful mission. It's the work of love. And you have the most beautiful promise. It's resurrection life in Jesus' love. And so I want you to hear the call this morning, press on. Press on to the destination of life with Jesus. 
But how do we get there? Well, our part is to press in to the process. If the destination is marked by Jesus' empty tomb, the process is marked by Jesus' cross. We're called to walk in Jesus' footsteps as his disciples. And we see this in verse 17. Paul says, Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And what he's saying is, is he's saying, follow in my footsteps as I follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Follow Jesus by imitating those who are doing it faithfully. And Paul is not claiming he's doing it perfectly, but that the way we learn to follow Jesus is by imitating others who are following him. And so this is how Christian growth comes. It comes through imitating other Christians, following someone who's a little bit farther down the path, gaining imagination for how to follow Jesus by watching them closely. And so again, back to my daughter, uh, three years old. She's the best observer that I've ever known. I went to this school performance and they were singing a song in Spanish and all the, all the kids were singing except her. She was just sitting there. And I was like, well, I guess she doesn't know a single one of the words. Um, but then she came home and she said all the songs word for word perfectly. She's a little bit of a perfectionist. You might be picking up. And I think she was sitting there quietly because she wanted to observe, because she wanted to learn and get it right. We had a parent-teacher conference and the teachers called her an old soul. They were like, she's an 80-year-old in a three-year-old body. And so they said she was having trouble putting on her shoes. And she was like, I just need my shoehorn. And if you, don't, if you don't know what a shoehorn is, it's this scoop that you scoop your heel into the back of a stiff shoe. Um, and her teacher was like, I've taught 20 years, and I've seen everything, and I've never seen a three-year-old ask for a shoehorn. <laughs> why, why did my daughter say that? She'd been observing and was imitating her 80-year-old grandmother who uses a shoehorn, right? And so as disciples of Jesus, we learn to walk in his footsteps, first by observing his life in Scripture, and then by observing mature believers around us and imitating them. It's this process that we call sanctification. Wherever you are in your journey, find a few people who are a bit farther along, pressing into the story of Jesus, who you can imitate and learn from and share your journey with. And likewise, find someone spiritually younger than you that you can pour into. This is the way the process works. We, by God's grace, endeavor to live a life faithfully following Jesus that's worthy of others to imitate. In my story, I want to give thanks. Uh, I did this in the first service where he was, but I want to give thanks for David Sawyer, who some of you, some of you may know, he's in, in this uh, congregation. He was my high school Spanish teacher, and he's someone that I often think of uh, when I think of someone who lived out the faithful Christian life before me. In some of the most discouraging years of my life, he served as strong evidence to me uh, that life following Jesus is the beautiful and the good life. And I gained imagination from him for what it meant to follow Jesus as I observed him and watched him and saw the beauty of his life. And it wasn't that his life was perfect, but he was farther along, much farther along than me. And I followed him as he followed Jesus. This is one of the ways that Jesus has proved his love to me as we sang. He's proved his love or and or um, through the faithful love of those around me and the beauty of their lives. And so there are three brief things we notice in our passage about this process of sanctification. First, we should expect people to be in different places along the way. Look at verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, 
God will reveal that also to you. So I think this is so important and so beautiful, really. Paul says, this is the way to think, but if you think differently, I'm really not that concerned about it because I know God's going to do his work in you. If only we Christians could learn to be that low anxiety like Paul, right? See, Paul not only had experienced God's sovereign grace in his own life, but he knew what that meant for those around him and as he interacted with others. He's okay with people being in different places on their journey. In fact, I imagine he's delighted that there are people in different places on the journey in the same congregation. And that's important for us to remember because I, in a room like this, I expect and hope that there are people in every stage of their walk. I imagine there are people here who are walking close to Jesus and people who are far away. And I'm so glad you're all in the room this morning. And in fact, the thing that matters isn't how far away you are or how close you are to Jesus. The thing that matters is the direction you're walking. Are you walking toward Jesus or away from him? Are you pressing into his story or turning away from it? So you can be a longtime follower of Jesus who is turning away from him. And you can be far away and you can be walking toward him. Paul says in verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. In other words, watch yourself. Don't be that concerned about other people. Just watch you and what direction you're heading in your heart. Are you pressing into the process? Second, it means you're going to feel a tension in your life. Paul says, I haven't obtained it. I don't consider that I've made it mine. And so he feels this tension in his heart. I know Jesus is the one to love, but I don't yet love him wholeheartedly. And if you feel this tension, I want it to be an encouragement to you that you're in process, that God is at work in you. Elsewhere, Paul describes this as the war between flesh and spirit. And again, that doesn't mean body versus soul, but that means the tension between walking with earthly desires defining our story versus walking toward the horizon of the story that Jesus is writing. And this is why the process will feel like a cross. It's a battle. It involves suffering. It involves taking up a cross and putting the old human to death. On the other hand, if your life doesn't feel like a battle at all, or if you're always giving in to your appetites and you don't put up a fight, you should wonder whether you're pressing into the story of Jesus. And so I imagine there's a call to some of us to press in toward Jesus so that you even feel that tension. Third and finally, we notice that although we have to engage the process, sanctification is something that God is doing. Look at verse 21. Paul says, Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by his resurrection power. And so if Jesus can resurrect bodies, how much more can he resurrect and restore our hearts? Jesus has made you his own. He's put his spirit in you. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. The process of sanctification is God's work of growing your love, and that means it will surely happen. It doesn't depend on you. It depends on God. God preserves his saints because of his grace. That means your status with him, his love for you, does not one ounce depend on your efforts. It depends not on our taking up our cross, but on the past fact that he took up his cross. If you're in Jesus, you will arrive at the finish line because Jesus will get you there. He's given his life for you. He's atoned for all your sin. He's put his spirit in you. Nothing is going to stop his work in you. And of course, that doesn't mean we stop working to walk in his steps. 
Instead, that means we should, that should motivate us to work harder, to press in to the process of discipleship. Pastor Chad Scruggs puts it this way, the gospel is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. We put the effort in because Jesus has already taken hold of us. He pressed on to love us so we could press on to take hold of him. And so I want to ask you this morning, what's the most important process that's going on in your life right now? Is it the process of securing economic or social capital? Is it the process of making or keeping a friend or relationship? Is it the process of raising children? The Bible actually invites you to see that the most important process is the process of sanctification. It's living into the story that Jesus is writing in your life. Living into the story of the cross and the empty tomb. But why would I embrace a story and a process that's marked by a cross? Again, it has to have captured you. It has to become beautiful to you. Friends, if I'm the author of my life, then my life is the crummiest book I ever read. But if God is the author, and he will assuredly bring the process of the cross to the destination of the empty tomb, not by my strength, but by his, and if I know that even though I don't yet love Jesus perfectly, and meanwhile he in each moment perfectly loves me, I think that story can capture you, right? Learning to receive that, hold on to that, delight in that, discover what that means for this story that you're living into. Will we press into the story Jesus has written or will we turn away from the scripts? Friends, Jesus pressed on to take hold of you through suffering. Press on to the destination and press into the process that you might take hold of him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you daily press on to take hold of us and that you've proven this to us in your death on the cross on our behalf. Lord, will you bless this wonderful church? Will you give your spirit here and allow this body and these people to press on to take hold of you by your grace, for your glory and our good. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.